0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask you, if you didn't hear, open to Romans 1. This will be a different sermon. In reality, this is simply an introduction, so I'm going to give you an introduction to my introduction, and then I'll give you the introduction, if that makes sense. Um, but Romans chapter 1, if you uh, don't have a Bible and and if you don't know your way around a Bible, underneath your seat uh, in front of you or one near you, you'll see a black Bible and it's on page 119 near the back. Uh, the the Bible is divided into Old and New Testament and they start the page numbers over again once you get to the new. So get to the back part of the Bible, find page 119 and you will find Romans one. As I said already in the announcements, um, obviously, Kim and I are back from our trip. The Lord was kind and brought us back. We had a few close calls. One of them was coming down the mountain from Yosemite at around uh, 10,000 feet, and our brakes gave out, um, and we had to have them all replaced. This is pretty typical stuff for Matt Henry. Uh, you may have heard of the uh, intense flooding at Yellowstone. Um, uh, not Yellowstone. Yellowstone, yeah, where it flooded and shut the whole park down, that's because we were just a day away traveling to it. Uh, I, again, you oftentimes wonder why you even bother, uh, and, and you afflict everyone else in your myth because you end up saying, oh, let's go to Yellowstone, and it goes away. So in all of that, we, we, we saw many beautiful things, but the thing that I think that was most valuable for me... Um, is us visiting different churches, uh, having to go into a new place and begin to search. And, and you, you have no idea how difficult that was, perhaps, uh, in some of the areas that we were in, to find a sound church. We were able to function, finally, not as pastor and wife, but we really have come in just as a man and a woman, and we were able to see what it was like. But more importantly for me, at least, as pastor, it it allowed me a chance to have a glimpse into the state of the church in America. And in our time away, we were able to experience excellent churches, and we were able to experience bad churches, and we were able to experience everything in between. The basis of our judgment, what we judged a church on was, however, simply this. How well did they handle the Word of God in the pulpit? Everything else was secondary to us. What we really only cared about was when they opened the Word, what did they do with it? How did they handle it? Was it proclaimed? Was it done rightly? And was it focused upon God or man? a type of service or liturgy, if you will, really didn't matter. And we saw every kind of uh, liturgy that you could have from very complex and God-exalting to extremely simple. But all of it was there. And we didn't really mind that. We just observed it. At the same time, we would sing And most of the time, we could sing with the people. There were times, though, that I could not, before the Lord, in good conscience, sing the kind of song that they were singing. The words were horrid, and they were simply wrong. We were able to experience little churches that we hoped would grow. We were able to experience big churches. In fact, Kim and I were able to go to our old church back in Los Angeles and spend a week there with John and Esme. We saw churches that need to die, and they're just living barely. During that time, I also spent time reading. I finished far more, many book, far more books than you care to know, but there was one book that I wanted to focus on, and, and I specifically brought it for the goal of reading through it and reading through it with a clear purpose. and that was the Bible. The topic in which I chose to read as I read through the Bible over my break was the wrath and judgment of God. Now, I commend you that style of reading. If you've never read through the Bible in your life all the way through, then I would just simply say, stop making excuses and do it. Just read it. We have a Bible reading program. You can participate in it. I don't care how you do it. It only takes literally, if you read it out loud, 70 hours. The whole book, Bible, 70 hours if you read it out loud. It's not difficult. You just need to do it. But if you have made it your habit, as we try to encourage you to do here at Missio, to read the Bible, what you can start to do after you've finished out this uh, year is buy a Bible and you'll have to get a fancy one, get a a simple one, uh, inexpensive, and then pick a topic and begin to read with that topic in mind. What you will find is as you read through the Bible, you'll be a bit more focused because you're looking for those subject matters. Like I'm now reading the Bible again, and now I'm reading on God as creator. And you can just pick various things, whatever you want to do, and you begin to highlight it. Well, what I chose was the wrath and judgment of God because I'm such a cheerful man. But there is actually a purpose behind it. In Romans chapter 3, don't turn there, just listen. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, there is this long listing of very harsh things said about mankind, things such as there are none who are righteous, there are none who do good, that lying mouths and, and poisonous tongues abound, that we are quick, quick to do all sorts of evil. But what is important is at the very end of it, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Now, that's one thing for a non-Christian who would openly say, I'm not a Christian. I have no interest in being a Christian. Or I have never heard about Jesus Christ. I don't know anything. I just was born and I'm living. That's not, that, that would be acceptable for you to say, well, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That makes sense. But I would argue, especially based on our traveling, that it is an apt description of much of the external church in America, that it evidences little to no fear of God. And then I say to you that if perhaps you might be nodding right now, and you say, yeah, that's right, pastor. I would ask you to examine your own heart before the Lord right now and say, what about me? How often does the idea, the concept of the fear of God, capture you? Because it's always easy to look out there, isn't it? Oh my goodness, the way our nation is right now, we can come up with all kinds of ways that that happens. But what about here at Missio in our hearts? And then, of course, in all of that, I had to say, Do I have a fear of God? You want to have that develop? Read through the Bible and mark up every passage that describes the wrath and judgment of God. I wore out two pens. I knew it was a lot. I mean, I've read the Bible many times. But boy, when you begin to highlight it and only it, there are times where you almost breathe a sigh of relief that you don't have to mark a verse. And that was my question. That was my question reading through the Bible then. So as I read verse after verse and book after book about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, something happened to me. I became sad, very sad. Yes, I don't think I've ever been that sad. And as I read, and as I became sad, I, my mind is always doing what it does, and my mind went to Acts chapter 5. For those of you newer, um, and you don't know me, we're going through the book of Acts verse by verse, and so my the book of Acts is very much on my mind, and Acts 5 came to my mind, and The way that Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who had sold land and promised to give the money to the church and then held some of it back, not really a big deal if you think about it in what you're doing perhaps in your life. And they decided to hold it back and lie about it and they were struck dead right there in the church. No hesitation by God that he just struck them dead. And it says the great understatement and a great fear arose or came over the entire church. And for good reason. What I mentioned to you was that the reason that this occurred there because up to that point, people were still sinning. So why them? Why then? It was because persecution was coming. And because persecution was coming, God needed them to stop thinking everything is good and happy and fine and become serious about their faith. And so he took those two and he used them as the example, and he struck them dead for their lie. And then my mind went to Acts 7, where Stephan being just simply faithful and a good man, and he was being used by God to heal people and do good things, and he's preaching about Jesus Christ, and all he does as a result of that is gets himself killed. He's dragged out of the city, they pick up many stones, and they begin to drive them into his body until he finally dies. And what we will see in chapter 8 when we get there after this little mini-series, is that persecution explodes upon the church. And I have said for 25 years, and I'm all the more convinced today, that persecution is coming. And my question to you is, do you fear God? If you do not fear God, then you will fear man. And you will not stand. It's that simple. If you do not fear God, you will fear man and you will not stand. So what do we make of all this? The wrath of God. Paul says, if you'll look down in verse 18 of Romans 1, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is being revealed, notice that word, from heaven, ek, ek, is the word. It, it, it's a preposition of motion, and, and it, it says that, that from heaven is this constant waterfall of wrath. And that's not how you and I think about heaven. If you're honest, right? You and I think about heaven and we think about it as a place of life, of peace, of forgiveness, of eternal life, of joy, of where God is, all kinds of happy things. How often do you think of heaven as the source, the fountain spring of a waterfall of the wrath of God? And yet the wrath of God is flowing, not will flow, not was flowing, is flowing and still flowing today out from heaven. That is God's wrath, his wrath against all ungodliness. So what is ungodliness? What is ungodliness? Well, ungodliness in in its most simplest form is something that we do all the time. You and I, if we're honest, we will say ungodliness is doing really bad things, right? It's it's the guy who's really up to no good. But ungodliness literally means to give no thought of God, to ignore him, to live your life as if there is no God, to give no thought of him. And then when you understand that, you realize that's what we all do. This is the whole world. How often are our minds consumed or or conformed, if you will, to the person of God? Is there fear of God in our hearts? But it has consequences, and those consequences are deadly. If you were to read on in that passage, you would find that God has made himself known to every human being. Every human knows there is God within their heart. That's not the issue. It's not for lack of revelation. Both the heavens and the earth declare it, and they see that. But their own heart sees it, God says, because he placed it in the heart of man. And they push it away. They suppress it down in ungodliness. They just choose to ignore him. And the consequences are bad because then God gives the ungodly over to that. And as they, he gives them over to it, it erupts out from their soul, the heart that is sinful, and they begin to do things they never thought they would do. You talk to every young person, they all have their plans and expectations, and then you talk to the old man, and you find all of the dreams that never were. When you hold your little baby in your hand, you, you, you promise to God that you will be this parent and that, and you'll do this and that. And you have, you've broken those promises by the time they are age one. And so it goes. God gives us over to our ungodliness. It erupts into greater sin and God's wrath flows and flows, and flows. And then if you just turn the page over one to Romans chapter two, that came to my mind. You're literally getting a sense of how my mind was running. In Romans chapter two, verses four and five, he says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says to these people in chapter 2, and it's a different group of people, these are the religious people who would say they do fear God, that they do have a mind toward God, that they are all sorts of things. And he says, no, you don't. No, you don't you're lying to yourself. He says, you think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. All that it is saying is that is the religious man's way of being ungodly. The irreligious ungodly, they just don't care about God and they don't think about God at all. The religious one will think about God, but he will think about God in the wrong way and presume And what are they presuming? They are presuming that because God has not dealt with them in a certain way, that God has not brought his hand on them in a certain way, that they're fine, that everything's okay. That he either sees or he doesn't care. The religious person will say this, well, I do sin, but isn't that God's job to forgive sin? And so we we begin to lie to ourselves and say, it'll work itself out because that's what God's supposed to do. And we begin to presume upon his tolerance and his patience. But each day goes by, and it's another day where we could turn to God or reap greater wrath in our hearts. He says, instead of repenting and honoring the Lord, in chapter 2, he says in verse 5, all you really are doing is storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Can you picture that? Picture a waterfall of God's wrath flowing incessantly from heaven into a storehouse for you. Don't don't make this impersonal. Don't make this yeah, that's a vague thing and it's going to come. No, for you. You are storing up for yourself. He says. His wrath. What a terrifying phrase. This is where then Romans 3 comes, and we come a big circle to where I began, where again he gives this list of things that are true about all of humanity, starting in verse 10 down to verse 18, where he says, and I'll just uh, summarize it, that there is none righteous. There is none who do good, much less do they understand. All are useless. All are swift to kill, swift to lie. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned, and all have fallen short of his glory. God's wrath is revealed against all of humanity. It is flowing from heaven. It is filling the storehouses that only God could build that could hold his wrath. And it is waiting to be poured out. On the day of great wrath. And yet, we still conclude we're the exception. Nothing bad has happened. Nothing horrible. We're warned and we think God is fine. And so we live with no fear of God. And they continue to fill So where's the hope? If all have sinned and all continue to fall short of his glory and from God himself, where is our hope? And the answer will always be and only be in Jesus Christ, what the Bible would call the gospel or good news. So that then creates a new question in my mind. Do you understand that? you even know that. So of all of the topics I thought of preaching on over the last three months, and I have thought about many, I ultimately came back to conclude, you know what? I just want to tell them the gospel. And I'm going to do it my style, which is multiple weeks. The gospel. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Do you understand What is meant when you hear somebody ask you, are you saved? Or when were you saved? What does that mean? Do you have that knowledge? Here is a man named John. You know him, if you know your Bible, as John the Baptist, prophet out in the wilderness. People are flocking out to hear him proclaim because they heard that the one that the Old Testament prophets prophesied of, the Christ, the Messiah, was here. And so they heard him, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is near, and they were coming out to hear him, and out came the religious leaders, and one of the key messages that John was telling them was the coming of God's wrath, and he was calling them to flee it, and then talking about how to flee from God's wrath, and out comes the religious leaders, and that's exactly what he asked them, why are you here, who told you to come And flee from the wrath to come. The message of John the Baptist was, there's a coming wrath and you need to flee from it. And the answer is going to be found in Christ. So then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, that through Jesus, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. This is all introduction, so... You will be saved through Jesus from the wrath of God. In another book, Paul says that Jesus is the way we are rescued from the wrath to come. So we need to get that right, don't we? God is filled with wrath. And it is a righteous wrath. It's an infinite wrath. It is directed toward all who have sinned, which is us. And yet he has also provided a way of salvation, of rescue. When somebody asks you, when were you saved or are you saved? That's what they mean, even if they don't fully understand it. When were you at that point in your life where God saved you from his wrath? There's another way you can do it, and that's go to Psalm 5. Now, again, if you're not sure where that's at and you have the, the Bible that we provide, it's right in the middle of the Bible on page 394. 394. Now, I, I turn, have you turn here because there was a time I was having a debate many, many years ago at my old church with this guy. His name is Brian Sheely, a man way too smart for his own good, neat guy. Good man. And I was trying to explain to him my understanding of sin and God's relationship to the sinner and sin. And I think I said something really stupid, but I thought it was really good back then. Well, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. You've heard that. Well, you know, you got to remember that God hates the sin. Yeah, but he loves the sinner. He's like, you sure about that? And I was like, well, everyone knows that. And he's like, you sure? I'm like, I think so. He's like, you should go back and read Psalm 5. Now, I had already read the Bible several times by then. So I'm like, well, who are you? Well, that just shows you that you can read the Bible. By then, I read it probably 10 times and... 10 times and I still don't know what Psalm 5 says. So keep reading it. Don't you ever stop reading your Bible. I want you to notice what it says because this is, we live in a time where we can't be unclear on what the Bible says about the wrath of God. Look at verse 4 through 6. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, God hates the sin, right? Okay, that's what it says. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say no evil dwells within you. He says no evil dwells with you, meaning he will not tolerate evil in his presence. The boastful, then, he shifts it from the sin The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, what? Hate all who do iniquity. And you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And that was the day my life got rocked. It was one of the many times my life got rocked. And he asked me the next week, did you read Psalm 5? And I did. He said, so what are you going to say now? I said, I've got a lot of thinking to do. And it was there that I began to see yet again, and it's been multiple steps in my journey on it, of, of recognizing that I treat God and His holiness so lightly. I hate all who do iniquity. I abhor the liar. Where's our hope? Look at verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. The answer is, flee to God. Find your refuge, your rescue, your salvation in God, for he is angry. So what do you do? Run from him? Where are you going to flee? Where are you going to flee? He made the heavens and the earth, which is why I'm reading now of God as creator. He made the heavens and the earth. Are you going to go to the highest part of the, the universe or the deepest part of the sea? Psalm 139 says, he's there. You want to hide within the womb of your mother? He's there. You want to hide within the grave? He's there. He's everywhere. He is a maker. Where will you hide from his frown? The only place you can hide is in him. And he welcomes you. But with all of that, My mind then goes to the fact that we still have sin, and sin does what sin does. It always, by nature, twists and corrupts, so that even when we talk about the good news, the gospel, it gets messed up. In the hands of people, we twist it and we corrupt it, and so sometimes what Kim and I would hear at a church while we were visiting was not really a clear gospel, because we're trying to soften it or we're trying to sell it instead of proclaim it and warn the people. So we have this beauty and hope that God bids us, come and find our, your, our, our salvation in him. He says, come to me, that that's good news, that's the gospel. But then we watch it get distorted and maybe we do it. But Paul writes about that in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, don't turn there, just hear it. He repeatedly refers to the fact that what's going on at that church is that they have begun to preach a different gospel. So he says it literally that way. He talks about those who bring a different gospel. Then he says that they distort the gospel of Christ. And then a third way he says in chapter 1, that they speak a gospel contrary to what they received. And his answer to them is, let those people be accursed. Meaning, let them dwell forevermore under the wrath of God. These sort of alternatives abound and always have, and they are deadly as they give hope and assurance to people who should have no hope. They lie to you, and you hold on to them thinking you're good. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they speak of God's wrath upon false priests and false prophets. And what are these priests and prophets proclaiming? They're saying, peace, peace. And then he says, when there is no peace... Perhaps you've been spoken to and you've been told you have peace, peace, but there is no peace because you have never found Christ to be your refuge. And so, what I want to do the rest of this time, as I said, this was my introduction to my introduction. For the rest of my time, oh Lord, um, I want to set the stage for the mini, this mini series on God's wrath and God's salvation by by simply describing ways that we distort the gospel. Ways that we distort the gospel. To do that, I think, requires me to tell you what the gospel is. At its core, the gospel, the good news, is that through this person, Jesus Christ, our sin and our rebellion against God is resolved. Now, there is a lot more than just that. But at its core that through Jesus Christ, God has resolved our problem with sin and death. Now, the way this is resolved is through Jesus Christ, and it's something that only he can do, where through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection on the third day, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have life. His death was a sacrifice in our place as our substitute. He took our death that was ours to receive in punishment, and he took it upon himself. His resurrection is a way that he secures our salvation, and he defeats the enemy of death, which is where sin has its power. You die because sin, but Christ rose again, defeating even even death. And so through that, those two acts of his dying and his resurrection are enemies that we can't defeat, which are sin and Satan and death. They are defeated. With that comes then a command. The command for you is to believe that, to hope in that, to put your trust in Jesus alone. It's very important that you understand that it can only be found in Jesus, not Jesus plus. You don't add Jesus to your life. Rather, Jesus now dominates your life. Your hope rests in him. And what's the promise? Well, the promise is that all who do so are forgiven. They're forgiven by God and they're saved. And that they will enjoy eternal life with God rather than his wrath. Now, I'm going to unpack that for over a few sermons, but that's the gospel at its core. So with that in mind, here, how we twist this. The first one that we do this is the classic, ask Jesus in your heart gospel. Ask Jesus in your heart gospel. Very common. Perhaps that's how you were raised with that method. I was. What you are is you're told you say a prayer and you invite Jesus into your heart. You're not oftentimes, though, it doesn't mean that, and some of you, that's exactly what you did, and you are a Christian, but it has nothing to do with that prayer. That is what I want you to understand. That prayer is not what's going to save you. That's magic. A prayer is not a little pixie dust, and now, ooh, I'm in. God, in spite of ourselves, uses that, and we can come to faith in Christ. Too often, though, people have no idea really what any of it means. They're just told, well, I don't want to go to hell, so say this prayer. And if I say this prayer, I'm in. I'm safe. It's done in various forms of prayer. Uh, one example is what uh, this organization called Crew uh, used to be uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. This is the prayer that they recommend you pray. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Now, I want you to notice there's some good things in there. There's some right things. The death of Christ on the cross, that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, But they somehow managed to forget the resurrection. But I want you to see that that's a formula. And if you say this formula, you're saved. So what's wrong with it? What makes this wrong? Well, it centers on what you did and not what God has done. Remember the old movement they did, uh, WWJD? What would... Jesus do, right? And you got bumper stickers and little things around your arm, and and everyone got really annoyed by that. What was wrong with that is that it doesn't matter what Jesus would do. In fact, there's many things that Jesus would do that you cannot do and should not do. What matters is this, what has Jesus done? Not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? What really matters in life is what has Jesus done and do you hope in that? What would Jesus do then puts you back under the law, under rules, where you're now trying to do what Jesus would do and you hope that you do it good enough. It focuses on you rather than on God. Though it talks about what Jesus did in these prayers in one way or the other, the emphasis is on you praying it. So I ask you a question, Are you a Christian? You say yes, and I say, Well, why do you say that? And you say, Well, I ask Jesus in my heart. See, it's all about you and what you did. And when you say something like that to me, I immediately go on high alert because I don't know if you are a Christian at that point. Because at this point, you have not yet described for me why you are a Christian. All you've talked about is what you did. And when I say, what does that mean? You might tell me or you might not. It's very similar to situations where you'll have at the end of the service, they'll have you walk down the aisle if you want to have Jesus and or you want to receive Jesus. Or they might want to make it more comfortable for you. So they say, if any of you in there as, remember this, those of you who grew up in church, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord, just raise your hand. And then you always hear the guy and he says, yes, yes, I see you. I see the hand. Yes, yes. And and you always want to peek and find out is there really anybody? But what's what makes it so wicked is you figure that you raise your hand and you're in. And the wrath of God abides on you because you have never come to faith. You've signed a card at the back of a book, you read a track, and it says, Ask If you want to receive Jesus, pray this prayer. And you're good. And I tell you this, that on judgment day, countless will say to me, or not me, to Jesus, but I asked you in my heart, and he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And oftentimes, it becomes actually a work, a good deed that you have to perform so God can save you. God wants to save you. He's waiting for you to open your door of your heart. Would you let him come in? Would you let him? He's knocking on the door of your heart. Let him come in. For many, the reason they think they are saved is not really what Jesus did. It's because they said the right prayer, and that's it. Now, you can change that. Strip away that prayer and make it baptism. Baptism. Why are you going to heaven? Because I was baptized as an infant or as an adult. It doesn't matter. I was baptized. I'm a Christian because I received a Christian baptism. That does not make you a Christian at all, the Bible would say. But we hear it all the time. Or I spoke in tongues. Or I had this experience. Or I had that experience. And we, we relate it to everything except my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. From start to finish, it's Jesus. Well, that's one false one. The next one is faith plus works or grace plus works, depending on how you want to word it. This is probably the most common false gospel. It shows itself in so many different ways. they very straightforward if you just give it some thought. And let me, let me just say this brutally, honestly to you, but also hopefully with a measure of kindness. Parents, you do this too often. Your child is making a profession of faith. They show an awareness, an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And I'm not saying that they vaguely do, but they're showing a true awareness of it. And then you have them baptized and and we rejoice. Maybe there is a younger person or older, it doesn't matter. But then the rest of their life as mom or dad, you keep bringing this up. Well, I thought you said you were a Christian. Well, I thought you said you were a Christian. And without you even knowing it, you bring the law and works into it. And you can destroy faith, and you can make people get become filled with wrath on their own because they're so exasperated, because no longer are they seeking to honor or please God, they're just trying to get mom or dad to accept them, or to shut up. Faith plus works, grace plus works. It's introduction, some of you are like, yeah, but pastor, I know, trust me, I know, don't just listen to what I'm trying to say. You believe. People believe, but, but they also think you have to do something. It can't simply be through faith. This is actually what drove the whole thing called the Reformation back in the 1500s with a guy named Matthew, uh, Matthew Martin Luther. And, and in there as a priest... In the Catholic Church, he recognized what they were doing is that that you were buying your way into heaven, you were working your way into heaven, and he began to speak against that. Think of the number of people who are assuming because they were baptized into the Catholic Church that they are therefore in. They may have to go to purgatory for a long time, but they're in. They entered the church through baptism and then through the various sacraments that they have to keep, and as they do them and they do them the right way, they're slowly earning their way into full salvation. No true Catholic can actually say that they are saved, period, this side of death, because it's all up to them to get themselves there. Add to that the many other things that the church oftentimes ends up adding, things such as the worship of Mary, the vows of poverty, monastic living, uh, eating fish on Fridays only. All of those types of things are simply works, And, and we do that, and we see it all the time, and we think we're in. But the Bible makes it clear. We're saved by grace, which means nothing that we could earn, We are saved by grace through faith, simply a trusting in what Christ has done. If we did it not by grace, but by our works, then we could boast. And he says, no, the way it works is so that you cannot boast. But legalism is the more common one you'll see in our circle, though in our city, Catholicism certainly is there. You have rules that you have to obey, and, and as you obey them, you earn favor in, with God. Legalism is actually best seen, maybe, by looking at it from a slightly different way. I've described how a person thinks they get saved, right? For many, uh, the words will sound correct, but you're saved by believing in Jesus, But then, when you ask it in a different way, and this is something I've learned as a pastor to do with some, as I hear their background, and I'll say, okay, let me ask you this. So, see what happens when I ask you this question How do you stay saved? How do you stay saved? And that's where legalism shows itself. I have to do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And I hope I do it well. And that's how it becomes unmasked. Salvation becomes a work of God. Uh, Salvation is a work of God from start to finish if it's God who draws you to himself. The Bible says that it is God who deals with our sin and our rebellion, but it is also God who keeps us in himself, safe until the day of redemption. It's God who gives us the faith. It's God who keeps us safe. As my old pastor said, if it was up to us to keep our salvation, we'd always lose it. Come on, you are as good at sinning as I am. Admit it, at least. If it was up to you, you would lose it. But if it's up to Christ, then he did it. Legalism always says this, do this, do that, and then God will accept you. Some of you are still doing that. Some of you, even though you're wonderfully saved, you're always flinching, waiting for the hand of God to strike you. It's... Be baptized, keep the Ten Commandments, be really good, clean up your life, get off drugs. All of those are good and right, by the way. But that's not what's going to keep you saved, much less make you saved. For some, it is that you must be baptized or you're not saved. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus only or you aren't safe, that you can't eat meat on Fridays, that there's no dancing or there's no tattoos, Uh, you must speak in tongues or you're not truly safe. All of those exist. I've been told that if you're a Christian, these are all things literally I've been told to my face, that you can't have any alcohol or women can't cut their hair, or men can't have a beard, or men must have a beard, that you cannot public school your children, or you must homeschool your children, that women must not wear slacks, or they must not have shoes that are open-toed, that there cannot be any tobacco use, or card playing, that you cannot have a TV, or if you have a TV, you can only watch Christian shows, shoot me now if that was true. Uh, You must give 10% of your money or you must live in a simple house. And the list goes on and on and on. Finally, it shows itself by seeing that your own goodness somehow qualifies you to be saved. So you accept the fact that you have to trust in Jesus, but there's stuff you got to do. And all this ever does to you is if you're serious about it, is it makes you miserable because you never do it good enough. You never do it. Then the third false gospel I'll talk on is prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. It's a teaching that in many ways was created by the Americans because why not? (laughs) And then, and this is where I'm, fighting because you really have no idea the level of hate I have for this false gospel. It gets exported into poor countries where these people will jet on their private jets into and they'll fill a stadium with thousands of people and they'll tell them all about this Jesus who can make them rich and wealthy like they are. These people will give their money thinking that as they give that God will grow it and then this guy will take all of their wealth that they have nothing to give but he'll take it from them. He'll come back home, and he'll just rob them blind. Places like India and the African continent are filled with prosperity churches, teachers, and teachings. One of the things that always struck me when I'm in Africa is that I'm carrying in my front right pocket more money than the vast majority of the people I'm around will make in one year and it's just walking around money. And they look at me, and they see a man of untold wealth. They look at you as a man of untold wealth, or woman. There's many ways you can describe prosperity gospel. In its essence, though, is that Jesus did for us what he did on the cross, was open up a reality where we now might prosper be wealthy and happy and prosperous and healthy. Most of the time, they'll teach that Jesus died for sins. They almost always will talk about his death and his resurrection, but how they teach it and why, what it did is what's important and what makes it a false gospel. The teaching shows itself in so many ways. See it as a line. All of these are on the line. From here's the gospel, and it'll be just a little off, to way over here, extreme. And so you have to be able to look at it with discernment. Regardless, what you will find with this teaching is that sin and sickness and death, suffering and pain and poverty, all of those become minimized. Those are not supposed to be part of your life. All we ever do instead is talk about good things. We're triumphalistic. So we only want to praise God when we got the pay raise. But we don't want to say, hey, praise God, I got demoted. We praise God when we find healing. Very seldom will we say, praise God, it's terminal. And that betrays that prosperity mindset that we carry in it that God is good when we get good things. God is not good when we don't. And yet God is just good always and ever. In the religious world, your life will be very good and pleasant and healthy if you follow Jesus. You will not hear them tell you that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what you will do is suffer. But the gospel says you will suffer you will be forgiven. You'll be given life in Christ, but you will suffer. Why? Because the world will hate you. This teaching has a way of heaping guilt upon you as well, because you're praying and believing God for the money that you desperately need, and then you don't get it. You're praying and believing for a healing for your son, and you don't get it. You're praying and believing that God will keep your child safe on their travels instead your child dies, and you're like, where was God? Where was God? I, pl- I, I trusted him, and he failed me. The teachers of this gospel live in luxury off the money of those who are giving to them to try to experience the life that these false gospel preachers have. You have it in churches where the so-called prophets declare peace when there is no peace. They declare health where there is no health. We witnessed that just recently with a man who has way too much influence in our city, a man named Bill Johnson out in Redding, California, who is telling you over and over again that it is not the will of God that you suffer sickness, that heaven on earth is our reality if we are a Christian. While he wears his eyeglasses and his wrinkles on his face continued to deepen, and now he watched his wife die of the very cancer he says does not exist in the realm of the Christian. It's evil, it's wicked, it destroys the hope the true gospel teaches. The true gospel teaches that even though your body is wasting away with that cancer that will not go away, your soul is well. It is safe in Christ, and he will raise your body to newness in that day. That's a better life. So you know the big names, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Myers, Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson, goes on. Let me give you one last one and then we'll tie this all up. Social justice, the gospel of social justice. It's a false one. It's the last one. I, I I could do this for a long time, but I have to let you go home. This is a recent event, but it's actually a remake of an older lie called the Liberation Gospel or liberation theology, again, like the prosperity gospel, there's these gradations in, in, in what it means. There are some who hold to the true gospel, but they, they're flirting with it, and it's frightening to watch. The idea is here is that rather than emphasizing Jesus Christ as the one who brings us life as our substitute for our sin, through his death and resurrection, the focus becomes social issues. So the gospel now becomes this this issue of justice, of doing justice for the poor. It becomes racial reconciliation. It becomes a redistribution of wealth. It becomes a destruction of power structures, stuff you're hearing all the time. it's one thing when you hear this from people who do not know Christ, they're just doing what they're going to do. But when you hear it behind a pulpit, it's evil. In this gospel that's no gospel, then Jesus becomes redefined. And the purposes of God become exceedingly man centered. That's all about the here and now. So now Jesus becomes the one who identifies with the marginalized. He identifies himself with the exploited, he rejects the wealthy or the powerful. The sin that burdens mankind is not our own personal sin, but it's the sin of inequality. And Jesus came to be an example on how to live humbly and to do justice. What is so evil about this movement is that it never addresses the root issue of my personal rebellion before God. That the wrath of God revealed against mankind is not revealed against mankind because we're doing sin to one another. That's a secondary thing. The wrath of God is being revealed against mankind is because we don't give a flying rip about God. We just don't care. It diminishes our state of sin and the wrath and the condemnation that God will bring upon us as sinful beings. That we are in need of salvation, that we need somebody to take our sin from us, that in Christ and only in Christ can we find reconciliation. It tells you to find your identity in your intersectional weaknesses. It tells you to find your identity in your exploited, marginalized, subcategory as a person, and Jesus says, find your identity in me and only me. There's a reason why the church is called the body of Christ. But this social gospel never gives anything in the way of forgiveness or life. If you haven't noticed, you can never repent enough to make the social gospel forgive you. Once you buy into it, you will be forever under it. You cannot break free from it because there is no gospel. There is no good news. There is no redemption. So let me close this up this way. Don't you shut down and turn off your brain. But it's only going to be a few minutes. Two quick points on how you can examine when a person or organization is saying, wrong things. Two simple ways you can do it. I've done this now for at least 45, 50 years of my life and it's worked well. First, ask yourself, how can we be made right with God? That's the first question is, how can I be right with God? Some religions and some people talk and you don't, you just got to, God's happy with it, and everything's good. So you need to ask that. How do I get right with God? For some, they'll just flat out say, you're fine. But most will say, do this. You can break it down to gospel, uh, I mean, grace or works. It's either grace, something God gives to you, freely to you, without anything on your end. He just gives you it or you have to earn it. You look at any religion, and it's that way. You can do it with the apostolic Pentecostal church that you got to do these things. You can do it with the Jehovah's Witnesses. You can do it with the Roman Catholics. You can do it with the Mormons, the Buddhists, the, the Hindus. You name it, any religion, no matter how wacky, and you're working somehow. It breaks down that simple. How can I be made right with God? Is it by grace or works? Then the second question you ask is, who is Jesus? Ask the person, who is Jesus? Every false gospel makes him something other than God in human flesh and our divine substitute. They'll make him almost God, slightly less than God, really powerful angel. He's a spiritually evolved person. He's your role model. He's your pathway to health or wealth. He came to seek to set the weak free from the shackles of inequality. He is the highest angel. He's the greatest of men, but he is not the son of God in human flesh who has redeemed us through his blood on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. It's that simple. How are are we right with God? That's the first question. Second, who is Jesus? So what I want you to think about this next week In each of these false gospels, there's some level of truth, but something gets distorted out of shape. Think about the many ways you've heard the gospel over your life, and think about how many of them were distorted. Think about the gospel you're telling people, and maybe you need to undistort it a bit what I hope to do over the next several weeks, or few weeks, I guess, is simply give you a very clear explanation of what it means to be saved. If God is filled with wrath, and that's what we'll look at, how then can we be saved? And that's where I'm going with this. I I want to show the reality of God's wrath, the reasons for it, how God saves people from wrath, and finally, what are the effects of that salvation? What's it mean then to be saved? But what I want you to do now is just go home and think. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God's wrath, his salvation? If you have questions, let us know. Send me an email. Send Grace an email. Grab a hold of us. Don't go home and say, well, I'll think about it, and then you'll shove it down and suppress it. Think about it. What do I believe is my hope in Christ? Drop us a question if you need, but we will help you in any way. Let's pray. Father, in some small way, I pray that you would use me and my words to begin to awaken slumbering hearts. Father, that we would pass not from that despair, but that we would wake up from perhaps slumber and distractions and that we might again be reminded that we serve a living God, the living God, the one true God, and that in you is life. Open our eyes to the glories of who Jesus is. Show us the, the need we have to rest in the power of the Spirit. Take sinners' hearts that are full of discouragement or where they've just given up and figured that they can't ever find it and show them that in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Allow our lips to speak that to others so that they might hear and believe. And I thank you for bringing Kim and I back here. We thank you for your love for us in your son's holy name, amen.